It's good to be with you on this Lord's Day. Couldn't think of a better place to be. Well, we're on uh, the 755th sermon from the book of Nehemiah. No, really just a five, I think five or so. But if you would please take your Bibles and turn with me to the fourth chapter of Nehemiah. Fourth chapter beginning at the 15th verse. A few decades ago, a fellow by the name of Winston Churchill, Prime Minister of England, former Prime Minister of England at the time, gave, gave an address. And in that address, in that speech, he said, never, 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 never give up. And that was about the sum and substance of the speech. Sometimes we want to give up. We just want to quit. Uh, years ago, uh, when I was in high school, many, many years ago, yes, we had cars and electricity. But uh, I was, I think I was a senior in high school, and uh, I was, with all of my heart, my, 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 my desire of my life, since I was five years old, I dreamt about this, thought about this, I, I, I couldn't wait until I was finished with high school. From the time I was five years old, I wanted to join the Navy. My whole life revolved around that, of joining the Navy. And uh, in preparation for that, just when I was in the 12th grade, me and a couple of my buddies said, we're going we're gonna to run in my hometown. We're going to run this one dirt road. And uh, back down, down into town and back up home again. It was quite a lengthy, lengthy road. And we ran down, running downhill is pretty, you got gravity helping you. But running back up is another thing. And I noticed that after a while, my, my two buddies just kind of gave up. I couldn't even find them anymore. They were behind me. And I was, I was running out of air. There was, I had nothing left in me. And I come around this bend, and all I saw was just more road. And I just kind of died there. And I'm just laying there gasping for air. My two buddies came, came walking up to me probably several minutes later. And we got up. They helped me get up, and I was exhausted. We went around the bend, and there was the finish line. Not more than less than 50 yards. I quit. If I would have just made that one more turn, I would have seen the finish line. I stopped. I quit. And I've thought about it a million times since then. If I would just put one foot in front of the other for just a little bit longer, I would have finished the course. In Nehemiah chapter 4, we're going to find about Nehemiah and, and finishing the course and about giving up. If you would please take your Bibles and look at verse 15 of chapter 4 of Nehemiah. It says, when our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, 
Then all of us returned to the wall, each one to his work. From that day on, half of my servants carried on the work, while half of them held the spears, the shields, the bows, the breastplates, and the captains were behind the whole house of Judah. Those who were building the wall and those who carried burdens took their load with one hand doing the work. Listen to this. One hand doing the work and the other hand holding a weapon. As for the builders, each wore his sword girded at his side as he built, while the trumpeter stood near me. I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is great and extensive, and we are separated on the wall far from one another. At whatever place you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So we carried on the work with half of them holding the spears from dawn until the stars appeared. At the same time, I also said to the people, let each man with his servant spend the night within Jerusalem so that they may be a guard for us by night and a laborer by day. So neither I, my brothers, my servants, nor the men, nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us removed our clothes. Each took his weapon even to the water. Let's pray. Father, teach us to stand firm in what we're doing, Lord. Not to be dismayed, but to to finish our course. Father, I ask that uh, as we look at this message today, Father, please give uh, clarity to to our thoughts. Uh, minds. Uh, Father, may we apply the truth of this word uh, so, Father, that when we leave here, Lord, we might prove ourselves to be uh, real soldiers for Jesus, builders, workmen who do not need, need to be ashamed, who will rightly divide the word of truth. In Jesus' name, amen. I closed last week's message Uh, with Nehemiah wanting to encourage the people of Judah while they were struggling in fear of what the enemy is going to do. You know, sometimes when you face an enemy, uh, one of the first things you want to do when you face an enemy, it's just intrinsic. You say, well, you know, if I'm not going to fight them, there's going to be flight. You know, it's either fight or flight, you know. Uh, We either stay there and fight or or we run. Uh, you, you see this even watching the news today. There are people who will fight, and there are people who feel that they need to leave. And uh, sometimes, you know, it's, it's a difficult decision to make. Do I fight or do I stay? Or, or do I run? What do I do? The people in Judah knew that the, that the imminent possibility of Sambalat and his forces coming to attack them this is going to happen. They knew it was going to happen. So ideas and plans would then be crippled by the existing thought that if they were to continue their building project, if they were to continue doing what they were doing, that the enemy would attack and destroy them. And that, and that fear lingered with them. Do I stay here? Do I give up? Do I tell Nehemiah, forget it, I ain't doing this. What do I do? So let's take a look at verse 14 from last week. Last week's message, the last verse says, When I saw their fear, 
when I saw, well, listen, think about it. You saw, he saw their fear. It's not a matter of just an emotion that you have. It, that emotion becomes so visible that people can see it. It says, I, I rose and I saw their fear. I rose and spoke to the nobles and the officials and the rest of the people. Let me ask you this. What goals or plans or desires do you have or you, or you put together for yourself uh, or maybe for your family or maybe for your church? You put some plans together. What is it you put together and then you discover that you have so much opposition to those goals and plans that it brought you to a place where you decided that it would be better to suspend the work the idea, the plan that you have. Just because someone opposes you in what you want to do, do you give up? Do you quit? What do you, what do, you do with it when you meet opposition? Let's say that you're, you have a job in church, you have a task in church, and, and then you just, all of a sudden people oppose you, and you don't like what people are saying or, or what they're doing, and maybe there's gossip Never hear any other, any other church in the world, but never hear. But there's gossip being spread about. And you hear the gossip, and you say, you know what? I quit. You know, all my ministerial life, I've heard that so many times. Pastor, I'm giving it up. I quit. I said, man, we're in, we're in the midst of a battle. We're in the middle of a project, and you're quitting. As I studied these verses for today, I came up with four things for, you, for us to consider when wanting to give up. What do you, what do, you do when you want to give up? Four, there's four things that I think that we, can, that we could learn here of how Nehemiah handled the situation that he was facing, because I think, you know, I can't prove it, but I think that those people wanted to give up. When they saw the enemy, that they were stronger than Judah, there was more of them than there were of the good guys. You know, the wall builders were fewer in number. The enemy was greater in number. They were surrounded north, south, east, and west. As I mentioned last week, Sambela to the north and Tobiah to the south and the Arabs to the west with Geshem and uh, to the east rather and to the west was the Ashdodites, the Philistines. All those people surrounding them. And to think of all the fear that these people had to deal with, that, that, that the enemy is going to attack any time. But there's four things that Nehemiah, I think that he used in order to help these people understand that they should not give up. Number one, determine, first of all, determine if what you purpose has God's approval. Is what you are doing from God? Look at verse 14. Nehemiah tells his people, remember the Lord who is great and awesome. What are you putting in your mind when, when you have opposition? I don't care what you do in church. You could be a greeter at the door. You could be an usher. You could be a deacon. You could be working in the music department. What, I don't, it doesn't matter. You could be a Sunday school teacher, a chairman of a committee, whatever it might be. What are you doing in the church that you know for sure that this is God's plan for you, that you're doing what God wants you to do? 
And all of a sudden, you're meeting with unexpected opposition. You say, where did that come from? And because you meet opposition, you say, I've had enough. As the scripture says, if the, foot, if the footmen tire you, what will you do when the horses come? Remember, he says. And if you look at his life, from chapter 2 on through chapter 4, if you look at Nehemiah's life, this is why, this is why he said, we, I have the, for the first point, determine if what you're doing has God's approval. But if you look at it, look at chapter 2 and verse 8. In chapter 2, verse 8, this is what Nehemiah says. It was God whose hand was guiding him. Do you see that in verse 8 of chapter 2? It was God's hand who was guiding him. Look at chapter 2 and verse 12. It was God who put the plan for Jerusalem in the mind of Nehemiah. Well, he says, God was guiding me. God put it in my mind to do this for, for, for Jerusalem. Verse 18 of chapter 2. It was God who gave Nehemiah favor. Think of all these things that are happening. Verse 20, chapter 2. It was God who would give success to his chosen people. Nehemiah was convinced of this. He was convinced of this. Chapter 4, verse 15. It was God who frustrated the plans of the enemy. If you're doing what God wants you to do, and someone comes against you, is God, is God going to assist the enemy or is God going to assist the person who's doing the work that God's called him to do and finally in, in verse 20 of chapter 4 it is God who will fight for his people he was absolutely convinced of this it's just like Paul says if, if God is for us who can be against us friends listen the same God is with us today that was with Nehemiah the Lord who is great and awesome, he says, he is our deliverer. In Second Chronicles chapter 20 and verse 15, we read, Do not fear nor be dismayed, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Whatever you're doing, if God had placed you there, if God put you there, if God is directing you, if God is giving you purpose in what you're doing, listen. Whatever opposition you're facing in that, what, I don't care what it is in the church. It doesn't matter what it is in the church. If God has placed you there, whatever opposition you come up with, is God fighting for the, uh, the opposing voice or is God fighting for you to whom he is called? Who's God with? Ask yourself, has God directed my steps thus far and is he now going to desert me? Absolutely not. Whenever an opposing voice or action went up against Israel, Nehemiah was quick to reinforce the people's minds that the task they were involved in came from God. Paul, like Nehemiah writes, if God is for us, then who can be against us? The second point concerning the idea of giving up is, are you open to reordering or, yes, reordering your priorities? I'm not telling you to stop. I'm saying maybe, maybe there's an obstacle in your way that is so big that you can't go through it or over it. It's like the Titanic. You know, 
It would have been better if they would have navigated around the iceberg, wouldn't it? I mean, they still could have got where they wanted to go. But sometimes you meet an, some opposition out there. Rather than thinking, well, I'm going to go through it, you know. I'm going to tell this mountain to move and be gone from me. Well, you know, I discovered in, in my years of ministry that some mountains just don't want to move. You know, his name might be Henry or her name might be Mary, whatever. But there are some mountains, <laughs> there, are some, there are some mountains you face that just don't want to move. So, you know what the thing to do is? If this is my mountain, I can do this and do this. Oh, can't go too far here. But and just walk around it. And there, are some, there are some things that you have to just walk. There are some people that in church, that they will never, never, never agree with you. Never. What do you do with them? Why fight them? If they're an opposing voice and you know you're doing what God wants you to do, you know what? Go around them. Couple steps here and a couple steps there, and a left oblique here and a left oblique there, and you're back on course again. Why would you sit there and fight when you don't need to? Or try to tear down a mountain that's impossible to tear down. Go around it, get back on course again. I was, uh, Station in Brunswick, Georgia, when I got out of boot camp in uh, 1820. <laughs> I went down to Brunswick, Georgia to learn air traffic control. And uh, so we're sitting in front of these, these radar screens. And you can see these little blips of where the airplanes are at. And, and it's just all simulated stuff. But, and you had to get that plane right on, right on course. You know, just if it's just a little bit off. You know, if a plane's a little bit off the runway, <laughs> it doesn't help them a whole lot. You know, the object is to get that, the wheels of that plane on the runway. You know, if you get it on Interstate 70, it doesn't help them a whole lot. So you want to get them on the runway. So I can remember sitting there, and I was just a little, just a little bit off. And I told, I, says, I, I told my instructor, I said, I'm just barely there. He says, yeah, but that guy wants to make sure he's going to be on the runway, you know, not in your garage. Sometimes you need to navigate to the little, to the left, or to the right. Maybe it's okay to reorder or, or to, or to, or to uh, change directions, to reorder your priorities, change your objective. Think of this. Sometimes when you do that, it gives you the opportunity not only to, to navigate around the obstacle, but also to understand that God's providence is at work in the situation. That God's providence is at work. Whatever you're dealing with, folks, whatever it is, I don't care what it, what it church or business or whatever it is, listen, there is no, there is no, there is no power that overrides the providence of God. 
If God has determined for this church to be such and such a church, that there's nothing that this world can do, whether it be physical or supernatural, there is nothing this world can do that can thwart God's perfect plan. When God sets a decree on something, it's decreed. You and I can't change that. So I live day by day, you should live day by day saying, listen, I live under the providence and the sovereignty of a holy God who is in charge of all of creation. One writer said this, doubt was the one-way street to failure. Whenever, whenever God has set a course for you as an individual or for the church, and you begin to doubt that, It ends in failure. Taking the delayed time or temporary change of course allows you perhaps to develop a deeper dependence on the one who is directing your steps. The Bible calls this, by the way, the Bible calls this faith. So if I go around an object and I'm moving like this, and then I go like this and like this and back over like this, you know what that's called when when I do that? Faith. I said, well, I know God wants me to get there, but if I have to sidestep and go around and come back again, listen, it's still faith that you're walking, you're walking with God. What quitting does when you come up to an obstacle, you up here and then you do this. That's quitting. That's doubt. When you meet an obstacle and that obstacle is immovable and you turn back, That's doubt. It's denying God's providence in your life. It's denying what God has purposed for you. The truth is still out there, but you turn the other way. Just like that young man 60 years ago, plus, he would have just kept on running and made one more turn, one more bend. He would have seen the finish line. You know what? If you go there today, 60-some years later, if you're, that street is still there. That finish line is still there. Faith permits you to enter each new day with a sense that God is in control of the situation. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. You should know this. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not to your understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He'll do what? He will direct your path. He'll direct your steps. It's a matter of trusting Him, having faith that this God, this is what God wants me to do. The third thing about not giving up. Keep in mind, your warfare against your enemy won't end until your work with God does. Verses 16 and 17. Do you remember Paul's words to Timothy when Paul had, had realized that his physical life was about to come to an end? You know, there were, there were a couple of horrible, horrible, horrible emperors of Rome. There was, I mean, it was more than just two, but these guys were the top of the, these guys were the bad of the bad. You know, it wasn't the good, bad, and ugly. They were just the bad. One of them was Nero, and the other was called Caligula. They were the two worst Roman emperors 
as far as Christians were concerned, that ever lived. It was these guys who would light up the streets of Rome with the burned bodies of Christians. They would impale them on boards, on sticks, boards. They would impale them and, 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 and set them on fire. And they would light the streets of Rome with burning Christians. These men hated, hated Christianity. Paul was imprisoned when Nero was the emperor. Nero is not a friend you know, it, it wasn't what a friend we have in Nero. Uh, <laughs> he hated Christians. I think he hated everybody. But uh, anyway, Paul sitting in jail, he knows his life is about to end. He writes to young Timothy, pastor at Ephesus. And this is what he tells Timothy, because he wants to encourage Timothy. He wants to be an encouragement to Timothy. Not saying, oh, it's terrible in here. Get me out of here. He writes Timothy. He says, Timothy, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. What does it say to you? When you think about quitting, giving up, giving in, throwing in the towel, whatever term you want to use. Does it sound like that you've fought the good fight? Have you finished the course? Have you kept the faith? Over the last couple, three messages, I talked about looking for a pastor. He's not here yet. And some say, where is he? Listen, listen, fight the good fight, finish the course, keep the faith. He's coming. Maybe God didn't put him in a, in a NASCAR, but maybe he's riding on a donkey. I don't know, but he'll get here when he gets here. Paul, as I mentioned, may have had to reorder his own priorities. In Romans, 1, in Romans 1.13, we read, often, he writes to the church at Rome, he says, often I plan to come to you and have been prevented so far. Or if you want the old, old, old King James, often I would have come to you, but I was let hitherto. No, we don't understand what that means, but, <laughs> but we know what this means. He says, I've been prevented from getting there. He wrote that in 57 A.D., I want you to think, he wrote that in 57 AD. He says, I want to get to you guys, but I don't know how to get there. Guess what? God had a plan for Paul to get there. Five years later, he's going to get arrested and be sent to Rome on a, on a prison ship. He says, I'll get you there, Paul. It may be not, it might not be on the Queen Mary, but I'll get you there. When God purposes something for you or for this church, you can bet your life on it that it'll happen. When God purposes it, whether you or I are involved in it or not, eventually we'll get there. It took him five years to get to Rome from when he wrote that. Five years. Friends, spiritual battles and wars and obstacles and problems are not ended quickly. Our job is to be found faithful 
not found complaining, but be found faithful even to the very end. I'm reminded of a story told about a retiring missionary, a missionary couple who had spent most of their adult lives in foreign service. Sailing back to England, the minister was hoping to be well greeted when they, were, when they pulled into port. But at their arrival, no one was there to greet them. No band, no fanfare, no welcome, no job well done, no pat on the back, no thank you. The minister, looking sad and dejected and dismayed, rejected and dismayed, told his wife that there was not a soul to welcome them home. And she looked at him and she says, but darling, we're not home yet. And folks, you and I are not home yet. When we get there, it'll be the Lord who puts his arm around us and says, well done, thou good and faithful servant. That's home. And fourth, it's we, not me, verse 18. It's we. Look at verse 18. He says, as for the builders, each wore his sword girded aside as he built while the trumpeter stood near me. Do you see, there is, there is the builder, there's the trumpeter, and there's me. Three of us. Not just me, but the, the builder, the trumpeter, and me. It's we, not me. We are called not only to be workers, but encouragers. Leaders do not lead well when working alone. Sometimes we get caught up in wanting to micromanage each other's people, each other's lives, other people's lives. You know, the micromanager, none of you answered that, I hope, but the micromanager says, I'm the only one that knows how to do this. It's my way or the highway. I can do this alone. Is that what you want for a leader? A micromanager? Let's look at Jesus as an example. In Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, Jesus has just been baptized, and he goes by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the leadership of the Holy Spirit into the wilderness, doesn't he? And there he has a jolly old time. No, 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 no. He's led by the Spirit, and guess who's there to meet him? The devil. He tempts him, and Jesus, Jesus wins that battle with the, with, the, with the devil, doesn't he? He measures victorious, and in Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 17, Jesus then begins his public ministry. As he begins his public ministry, does he go about saying, man, you don't see what I do to the devil there? He doesn't, you, don't, you never hear that again. You never hear that story again. It's printed in the scripture, but you never hear Jesus going about bragging about how wonder, what a wonderful job he did. And he doesn't tell people, well, listen, this is how you're going to do it. You know, you've got to sit out there for 40 days and 40 nights, no food or water, and then you'll be ready for this. No, he doesn't say that. He doesn't talk about that experience at all. You never find it anywhere in scripture other than it happened, but you never hear Jesus bragging about it. 
rather than brag of how powerful and self-sufficient he is, in verses 18 through 22, you know what Jesus does when he starts his ministry? He finds capable men. He finds capable men to build upon as his leadership team. Listen, the best leader is the one who is able to bring along other people with him or her. You mentor them. You mentor them. It's we, it's we, not me. A true leader is both a worker and an encourager. Sometimes, some, something else for us to consider. Uh, a whole lot in this church and anywhere else can be accomplished if you don't mind who gets the credit for it. I could care less if I get the credit for whatever happens as long as the job gets done. Let me tell you something. My reward does not come from people. Neither does yours. It comes from whom? God alone. He's the one I'm interested. He's the one I want his arm to be around me and says, well done, good and faithful servant. I mean, it feels nice when people pat you on the back, but sometimes they pat you in other places you don't want them to, and sometimes it's harder than just a little pat on the back, you know, if you know what I mean. You know, some people are always willing to give you the right foot of fellowship. <laughs> you, you, you need to be careful. <laughs> if you don't mind who gets the credit, a, a good leader, a good leader is like this. Uh, let me... I'm going, to, I'm going to use a non-Christian as an example. There is a fellow that lived in the 6th century B.C. He's Chinese. His name is Lao Tzu. He was a Chinese philosopher. Lao Tzu uh, is credited with the, being the founder of Taoism. Taoism is a religious and philosophical belief that puts the stress on selflessness, not selfishness, but selflessness. He writes this, a leader is best when people barely know that he exists. No good when people obey and acclaim him, worse when they despise him. Fail to honor people, they fail to honor you. But a good leader who talks little when his work is done, his aim fulfilled, then they will say, are you ready for this? We did this ourselves. That would make a wonderful pastor. When the church can say, we did this. I hope you understand what I'm saying to you. I'm, I'm not denying the work of the Lord and all this and His sovereignty. I'm not. But I'm saying, a person who wants the acclaim will hurt his people. A, peop, a, a leader who loves his people, he don't care if they get the credit or he gets the credit. He just wants to see the job done. And the people say, we did this. We, you and I, all of us, we, we did this. And finally, look at verses 21 through 23. Our church needs to have, as verse 22 says, we need to have guards and laborers. I want to quote Paul again. 
Paul writes in 1 Timothy 6.20, guard what was entrusted to you. Guard what was entrusted to you. So then what was Timothy to guard? What was he to guard? Before answering that, let's look at Nehemiah 4.22. It says in 4.22 that they were to set a guard to ensure that the people were secure and that the work would be completed. That, that was, their, that was their, their job as guard. Make sure that people are safe, the work gets done. That's simple, isn't it? People are safe, the work is done. Pure and simple. In earlier messages, I may mention that a, a, a sound and solid wall of doctrine must be built and maintained in this church. My friends, listen to me. It is absolutely quintessential, quintessential that you know what you believe. This is not just some social organization that we come and meet and it's a rah-rah siskumba thing. We come here because we want the Word of God to be first and foremost in our beliefs. That what we believe comes from the Word of God, not that we made something up or that it's a feel-good religion of some kind. We're not looking for that. You know, much of what we speak of in, in, in the Bible, if it's, if it's accurately talked, much of it opposes what, nat, what normal natural thought processes are about. Because it reduces, it reduces human sovereignty to this level and elevates divine sovereignty to this level. And whenever we reduce humanity down to here, you know, we are in such a kick in our world today. Self-esteem, self-esteem. Oh, my goodness. If I hear another message on self-esteem, I think I'll pull my hair out. <laughs> self-esteem. Let me, let me share a song with you. I won't, I won't sing it. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wonderful guy like me. No, 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 no. That saved a wretch, a worm like me. How good is your self-esteem when you say, Lord, I am a wretch. Because that takes you from here down to, that makes you feel like you can sit on a dime and swing your legs. But God is way up here. Way up here. That's what good doctrine does. It elevates the person of Christ, of God. Listen to Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Wherefore God also highly exalted him and has given him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow of things in heaven and earth and under, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's elevation. You need good doctrine to get you there. The spiritual lives of our people depend on it. So then, let's get back to Timothy. Timothy was to guard that which was deposited to him. The pure faith of the gospel is what he's talking about. Get back to the pure faith of the gospel. The pure faith of the gospel is not that we bring lost people into this church. 
the pure faith of the gospel is we get this church of God to where the lost people are at. And we come together as worshipers of Jesus Christ in this place. This is not the place for evangelism. This is the place for worship and, exalt, and, and exaltation of who Jesus Christ is. Let's evangelize out on the streets, not in the pews. The positive tomb was the pure faith of the gospel. Not only to set a guard for it, but to be a laborer to it. Listen to the word, word again from Paul. I close with this from 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 5. He says, talking to Timothy, But you, Timothy, you be sober in all things. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. And folks, listen to this. To encourage you to keep on going. He says, fulfill your ministry. Don't stop until it's done. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Father, for this day, for this people, for this church. Lord, as we set our course for, you want, for where you want us to go, Lord, we realize that there's going to be opposition and obstacles in our way, Lord. If we have to navigate around them and reorder our priorities, Lord, that's okay. But we need to get back on course where you're at, where you're leading us. Father, let's not set our anchor in the midst of the sea, but only when we arrive to our destination. In Jesus' name, amen.